If you have a copy of the Bible, you can go ahead and open that uh, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in that text again. Uh, we'll be in it just a little bit longer, even as a church family, as we go slowly through uh, this passage of Scripture. Uh, but uh, as, as you're finding that, which shouldn't be too hard, it's on the first page of your Bible, uh, probably. Um, the, I wanted to share a couple of things. A special welcome to you if you're a guest with us, uh, especially if you live here locally and you don't have a church family, or maybe you don't even know the Lord himself. Maybe this uh, message of Jesus is new to you. We're grateful that you're here with us, and we hope that you feel ministered to, that you are ministered to this morning. And if you'd like to get to know us more, let us get to know you more, hear how you could get connected, you could fill out a connection card. Either do it on paper, the, on the back of the program you received, and take it out to the lobby. Take a left out there. There'll be some folks at a counter who would love to talk to you, uh, get to know you a little bit, or you can fill it out digitally as well. Uh, follow that QR code. Uh, and if you are newer, whether it's your first Sunday or you've just been around a little while, but you'd like to get to know more personally uh, some of the leaders of the church, be able to ask questions of the church. Every month we have what we call Coffee with the Pastors. It's on a Sunday night at 6, and today is the day. We're doing that this month. So if you want to come back tonight, you'd be welcome to. I will have treats and coffee. I'll be over on this side of the building, same time as youth group at 6 o'clock tonight, but uh, you don't have to sign up, just show up, uh, but we'd love to have you uh, be with us. And then the other thing I want to say as usual is a thank you to uh, all of you as a church family for your generosity and how you continue to give from what the Lord gives to you, uh, to pool funds together to, to fund ministries around the world and even our community. I just wanted to continue to encourage you to be generous with what the Lord has granted to you. Uh, he has been generous to us. May we be generous uh, towards others and towards his, his ministries. All right, I trust that you have found Genesis 1. I wanted to start this morning by just sharing anecdotally about a spring break trip my family did uh, this past school year. Uh, We took several days during spring break, uh, and we went down to Kentucky. And we had two main spots we were trying to see, a place we were trying to go, and we hit both of them. One was the Ark Encounter. Some of you have been to that before. It's in Williamstown, Kentucky. Uh, And the other was Mammoth Cave, because it was more west in the state. And we went to both of those places. Places, Ark, the Ark Encounter in Mammoth Cave, and it made for quite the stark contrast in narratives. Uh, it was interesting to talk about with my kids uh, during and after the fact, the stark contrast and how the world was described in both of those places. Uh, if you've been to the Ark Encounter, it's a, a place that is run by a ministry called Answer, Answers in Genesis. Uh, it they will tell you uh, that the story that they teach from the scriptures is that our world is about 6,000 years old. That it was created by God in a span of six days. And that uh, a lot of the formations and things that we see in our world uh, were actually happened very quickly and dramatically at the time of Noah's flood. That's the story that they will present uh, to you, their narrative of the world. When you go to Mammoth Cave, when you look at their displays, when you take their tours and hear from their tour guides, you're going to hear about a universe that is billions of years old. And a a planet that is even, I think, billions of years old that was slowly formed um, by an unguided process of change. That all the things that we see in this world uh, happened by an unguided process of change. And so it made for quite the difference in narratives, quite the difference in stories. And the question fundamentally is which one of those is true? Uh, Is our earth young uh, or is it old? Young is a relative term, all right? Uh, Is it several thousand years old or is it perhaps billions of years old? That is not a small debate. And it's not just a debate even between Christians and non-Christians, although it certainly is. Uh, It's become a debate, even like an intramural debate, like an in-house debate, even within Christianity, even within the church, especially over the last few centuries. Uh, our town actually has had, our little Winona Lake has actually had an outsized influence in this debate, in this subject, because of a man named Dr. John Whitcomb, uh, who was a professor at Grace College. Uh, and so our town has been a big part of even this debate, this question, but it has become, uh, over the last couple of centuries, quite a controversial subject. And some of you are aware of this, some of you have delved into it yourself, um, but what has been sad to me as I've tried to study it and think, it, uh, think about it on my own and turn to the scriptures and listen to people is that people on both sides of the spectrum, both ends of the spectrum, uh, from both ends there's been a lot of things I would characterize as mudslinging, 
or condescension towards people, arrogance towards people who would disagree, accusation of motives of other people, and certainly a lot of division. Uh, there's been a lot of heat and comparatively less light uh, in the subject. Uh, it's been people have become at odds with each other. And I, I've seen this where people who believe in a young earth will often look at people who believe in an old earth and they will think things like, well, they've compromised the faith They've given way to liberalism. They've pledged their allegiance to Charles Darwin. Then I, I hear old earth people, people who believe in a, a very old earth, will speak and think of young earth people as people who have closed their minds, who've refused to learn from science, and who have pledged their allegiance to Ken Ham, if you know who he is. Uh, but we can do better than this. I would suggest to you as individual Christians and as a church family, we can do much better than this. Uh, and this morning I want us to come to God's word to teach us on this subject, to guide us and how to think about this question, how to even how to disagree about subjects like this one. This is a massive subject, a massive endeavor, but may our allegiance not certainly not be to Charles Darwin or to Ken Ham, but may our allegiance be to God himself. And he speaks to us in his word. And so that's where we're going to come this morning is the Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this is going to be our second week in this exact text. If you were with us last Sunday, which I'm not assuming all of you were, uh, we looked at this exact text. And we, we decided on purpose to divide it into two messages, two sermons. Last Sunday's was trying to emphasize what's clear in the text. Uh, this Sunday, today, is going to be addressing more of what is controversial in the text. And if you were with us last Sunday, uh, you heard me share about some of the things that I think are crystal clear in the text, that it has poetic features to it. There's a rhythm to it, a repetition to it, a progression to it as these days of the weeks unfold. We saw that it's a, a polemical text, like that it's actually confronting wrong worldviews and falsehoods and other origin stories. And we saw that it's preparatory, uh, that in this process of creation, God was preparing a place for human beings to live. And we saw, we ended by saying how Jesus came to prepare a new and better place for us in the new earth. And so we saw last week what is clear. This, this Sunday I want us to look, read back through this text and we're going to talk about what is controversial. I'm going to read this text in its entirety again because it's long. Uh, not because it's long, even though it's long. Uh, and it is good for us uh, to have repetition. God made us as people who benefit from repetition. And I don't want to assume you all were here uh, last Sunday or that you even remember reading it last week. Uh, it should be in front of us as we talk about it. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to actually start all the way at verse 1. Uh, and then I'm going to go through verse 25. And there's going to be more to this story in weeks to come. We're not even going to get to the creation of Adam and Eve yet, or to the Garden of Eden, those types of things. But I'm going to stop at verse 25 uh, just for the sake of time. And then we'll walk back through this text and, uh, Lord willing, uh, be ministered to about this subject. But follow along with me in your copy of the scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, 
Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light, to, give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the, wa- fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of it. This story continues. We'll see in weeks to come. It continues with the end of day six, the creation of man and woman and God's image, uh, and then God resting on the seventh day. Uh, And then chapter two picks up with a a zeroed-in focus on the Garden of Eden and more specifics on how God created Adam and Eve in the first place. And so there will be more to come uh, in the story. I might even allude to some of those things this morning. Uh, But I want to summarize the message this morning in this way, and then we'll walk back through this text. Just two simple things I'd encourage us to walk away from this text with would be to wrestle with what's controversial, but to revel in what is clear. Uh, To wrestle with what's controversial, we, I think, have a responsibility to do that and can gain from that. But we should also revel in what's clear, uh, that, that not all things are equally clear in the scriptures, but what is and what is essential, we should revel in, delight in, find unity in. So wrestle with what's controversial, revel in what's clear. When it comes to this uh, question of the age of the earth, there is a host of opinions uh, and viewpoints that people have, even within the church. Uh, They are way too numerous uh, for me to try to detail and enumerate for you. I'll just name some of them. There's uh, theories, interpretations called the day-age theory, the gap theory, the analogical day theory, the framework theory. There's lots of theories uh, that that I could and I'd be glad to talk with any of you about. Uh, But I want to start this morning for the sake of time and simplicity by sharing what my interpretation of this text is, uh, and then then we'll work from there. And I'll I'll try to share some thoughts of people who would differ, uh, and then how we should approach these questions together as fellow Christians. But the view that I would hold to, how I would interpret this text that we just read and the rest of the the revelation of God about creation would be uh, what many people call young earth creationism. That would be what I would hold to as an individual, uh, young earth creationism. And just a simple way to describe that, uh, if you've not heard that term before, would be to say this, that, that I would believe that this text teaches that God created the world during a span of six literal 24-hour days approximately 6,000 years ago. Uh, That would be how I would understand this text and and what the teaching of the scriptures would be. That's come to be labeled as as young earth creationism. And there's nuance you could add to it, I understand. But that, in a nutshell, is what I hold to. And probably, I'm guessing, uh, what many of you hold to as well, uh, given our our community and our background. Uh, But I want to share some things from this text that I think uh, lend credence to that viewpoint of why I think that is the right way to interpret this text. So I want to start there, just making some observations from this text uh, and even another text or two to help fill out the picture of why I think this is the best way to interpret this. The the first reason uh, that I I think this is the right way to interpret this text is it seems to me, and I know this is subjective, that that is the most natural or intuitive way to read this passage. Uh, If you set down a a young child who's capable of reading and you give them what I just read and ask them even to finish the story, uh, I'm guessing most of them, their first inclination, we think, 
That's describing six and then a seventh actual day, how we think of days in our life. Uh, I think that's how they would read it. It seems the most natural and intuitive way uh, to read the text. That is not an open and shut thing, though, because just think if you handed also a child a parable that Jesus told, right? Uh, Let's say of the prodigal son. You would hand them that text, and you would think, they would think, and you would think he's actually describing an actual human father and an actual set of two sons and an actual story that happened when he's really trying to make a point, right? That he's not describing an actual story that really truly happened, but he's trying to illustrate a bigger point. So it's not an open and shut case, just how it feels uh, to be most intuitive. We need to think, what does it actually say? Are there reasons, even when we look closer into the text, uh, to believe in this interpretation of the scriptures and I would say I think that there is. I want to point out a a few more to you. Uh, This text, Genesis 1, is consistently, I would say, it's using, referring to uh, terminology that maps on to 24-hour days, right? And it's not just the word day. Uh, there, there's language here I think that's important in this whole debate. Uh, this, there's a refrain that you could probably feel it or hear it in how even the text was read of not just saying there was a day and then another day and then another day, but there's this refrain that's pivotal to the text of there was evening and there was morning, the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning the third day and so on and so forth uh, throughout the text. And so there's language in there, not just of day, but of more specifics, of time of day, of a passing of days. And even in verse 14, if you put your eyes on that, there on uh, day four, when God fills the, the skies with the sun and the moon, there's language there that again maps onto language of actual time, how we think of time now. He says that the sun and the moon are to be, he says, for signs, are signs for seasons and days and years. So there's again like language, it's not just abstract, but it's specific of marking things how we still tell time today. And then just another observation is that uh, that would counter some viewpoints of this text is I think it's important that it's not just, hey, here's a day and then another day and then another day and another day, but they're numbered. There's a first day, a second day, a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day, a sixth day, and a seventh day. And so there's these observations, uh, though we may want more, those are observations in the text, I think, bend toward understanding these as talking about actual 24-hour days. But God has given us more revelation, right? That we don't just have Genesis 1 and that's it. We have further revelation. And another text I think is really pivotal to this question, at least it has been for me, is in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, as, as God met with Moses out Mount Sinai and gave him what we call the Ten Commandments, uh, one of them that he gave him was about the Sabbath day. And in it, in this command of the Israelites that we have recorded now for us, there's reference made to how God made the world and how that has implications for how human beings are to live their life. So hear this. This is from Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through 11. Uh, God said through Moses uh, to his people, he said this. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And then hear this. This is the rationale. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That opens a whole host, a big wide subject. But I just wanted you to see the logic that is tied there of how God created, how it was revealed in Genesis chapter 1 of creating in a span of six days and resting on the seventh day. That is used as grounds for how those human beings then were to spend their sets of seven days right? It doesn't work backwards where there was this set of human days that uh, human beings had and then Genesis 1 is trying to use that to explain backwards what God did like in some metaphorical way but his logic is God made the world in six days so you orchestrate your life around six day blocks and then a seventh day to rest. So that is hugely significant I think to how we interpret Genesis chapter 1. Another theological point, just kind of broader theological point that I think... Uh, bolsters this interpretation of Genesis 1 is 
old earth, like if you believe in an old earth, I think, unless you have some viewpoint I have not heard before, your viewpoint would require that you believe that animal death happened prior to the fall of mankind into sin. Uh, that, I think, is a necessity of how you view things in an old earth paradigm, that you have to believe that for some epoch of time uh, that there was animals that would die again and again and again. And I, In general, I feel like that counters some of the New Testament's teaching from the Apostle Paul, in text, especially a text like Romans 5, where he talks about how death spread because of Adam's sin, uh, that that's how death entered into the world. So those are, are a few reasons I think there's way more that could be said uh, of defending young earth creationism. I think there is good grounds to believe so. It's not just uh, ignorant thinking or just kind of old-fashioned ways of thinking. I think within the text itself and in the rest of Scripture, there's good, solid ground to believe that these were six literal 24-hour days. That said... I want to acknowledge that there are legitimate challenges that people make, even brothers and sisters in Christ make to this viewpoint. And they were ones I think I was largely ignorant of or oblivious to until recent months, like where I more thoroughly have read on this subject and tried to listen to people's uh, viewpoints. And I want to share some things, even textual observations people would make of of this text uh, to not to, I am certainly not trying to convince anyone to become an old earther, uh, because I believe in a young earth. Uh, but I, I want us to grow, if we are young earth, believers in young earth, I want us to grow in humility. I want us to grow in our understanding, our seriousness of the questions that people ask, and our, our willingness to address them and engage uh, with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to share just a few challenges to young earth creationism from the text and even from a few other domains and then offer a simple response to it before we think finally, lastly, about how to disagree. And I'm going to have to skate by some of this, okay? Uh, but I, I want to share some of these things. Uh, So as we think of challenges to this interpretation of young earth creationism, uh, one thing I would want to note up front is that uh, it is wrong to assert, and I hear many people assert this, that the Christian church has just always uniformly viewed in young earth, uh, that they have always viewed every single person who has a brain or something like that and a Bible has believed in young earth creationism. That is not true. Uh, There have been people throughout time in the history of the church, even if it wasn't a prominent view, uh, even Orthodox people who have believed in an older earth. And so it is not fair or true to say that people who believe in an old earth are just doing so because they've heard Charles Darwin's theory or because they are trying to fit some information into a paradigm. People have believed differently about this subject for a long time. And you can look these things up yourself, but even uh, someone of no less caliber than Augustine, uh, who's one of the deepest thinkers, uh, most influential thinkers in the history of the church, he was not convinced that Genesis 1 had to refer to 24-hour days. Uh, He had this openness even in the 4th century, uh, way before we had uh, like all these inf- tools and information and could see things and study things, uh, all these theories that developed, he believed that Genesis 1 could be interpreted in a more, uh, a broader, longer span of time. Even if you know me, if you are here many Sundays at all, you will hear me quote Charles Spurgeon all the time. Uh, I remember when I, he was a, a pastor in England uh, in the uh, 1800s, he uh, spoke I read this one time, it just stunned me, because I would have assumed he did not believe this. He said in one of his sermons one time, just super matter-of-factly, he said, we don't know how remote the period of the creation of this globe may be, certainly many millions of years before the time of Adam. Our planet has passed through various stages of existence, and different kinds of creatures have lived on its surface, all of which have been fashioned by God." When I read that, my jaw about dropped. As someone who uh, loves him and still love him uh, and fundamentally disagree, but I, I just want to rid you of the idea that if people love the Lord and love the scriptures, that they inherently, obviously will land on a young earth creationist position. Uh, that, that is not true, even though I still believe and hold to that position. But what matters the most, and I hope you agree with this, isn't what Augustine thinks. 
right? Or isn't what Charles Spurgeon thinks or what I think. Uh, what matters is what God thinks and what God has said in the scriptures. And so I want to point out a couple things from this text that uh, are actual textual observations that people who believe in an old earth would point to uh, that bend them down some different paths than maybe what many of us may be on and where many of us may have set our camp. So a couple things uh, from this text. Now these just have to be brief. Even within Genesis 1 and 2, uh, they would point out that the word day is used in a way that doesn't automatically refer to a 24-hour period of time. You can look at it. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Just a little bit past what we read. As, it, as the text kind of pivots to zero in more on the creation of the Garden of Eden and on Adam and Eve, listen to what Moses wrote in Genesis 2, 4. He said, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so even if you think that is referring to a six-day period, it's a singular term day that's referring to something broader than a single 24-hour unit of time. And so uh, there is flexibility of that word, although I I'm not persuaded of it, uh, given what I mentioned before, but there is flexibility of how that word is used within the Old Testament. Uh, they would also make observations, uh, some related to the sun and the creation story that, uh, that we read through they would point out things like that there was an evening and a morning the first day, the second day, and the third day before there was a sun or moon to even mark day and night, right? Uh, which was created on day four. They would point that out to us. They would point out to us uh, that the earth is on day three Remember, the sun is created on day four, even on day three, that the earth is springing forth vegetation and plants, things that we know in our experience to depend on sunlight. Uh, you have in the creation story here of Genesis 1, you have plants existing before sunlight. And it makes them question, how could that be? Or how, what it, it makes them question like sequencing of things and what's going on in this text. Uh, they would also point out that you, we didn't get to this in our text, but they would point out the uniqueness of the seventh day of the week of this creation. When you get to that day, it actually does not have that refrain of there was evening and there was morning. The seventh day. It doesn't have it. That's absent from the seventh day. Which if you, th if you think, like I do, that these are seven sequential days, like a clock is, is ticking, so to speak, in the mind of God, and this is the seventh day, you would expect that seventh day would end, right? Like, and then an eighth day would start. Uh, but there is no record of that, and that makes some people think and read the text as that being a hint that maybe these aren't just 24-hour period days. Like if that day didn't have a, a tight ending on it, maybe these other days could be viewed in a, in a different frame as well. And the last thing I'll point out textually that they would argue, and we'll get to this when we get to chapter two, this is fascinating. Uh, I don't know how many times I've read this and not paid a lot of attention to this. When you get to the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter two, uh, they would point out that uh, there is a felt, at least, difference between chapter two's sequence and chapter one's sequence. That in chapter one, uh, you have vegetation created on day three, right? And then Adam and Eve created on day six, right? So vegetation comes first, eventually come Adam and Eve on day six. When you get to chapter two, some of you know this from your Bible reading, it'll talk about how there were not yet uh, plants that had grown up in the ground, or from the ground. There had not been this water to, to water the plants. And you see God create Adam and Eve, or Adam, first, and then plant a garden, and then make the, the, the vegetation spring forth, and these trees grow uh, there in the garden. So there's a different, at least feels like a different sequencing to them. I think there are good answers to that. I do not have time to discuss them. When we hit those texts, we'll get to them. But I, I mention those things because there's actual textual observation people make. It's not just they've heard, oh, Charles Darwin's theory and I got to fit my Bible into understanding that. There's actual issues within the text itself that make people uh, think, how does Genesis 1 teach us? What is God trying to say through it? What is he describing there? Uh, they would also point out, and I have so much more I wish I could say, uh, they, would, they would believe, old earth creationists would believe animal death could have existed prior to the fall of mankind. That is a massive subject uh, that uh, I, I would just point out that they would 
refute what I would say even by pointing to Romans 5, the text that I was referencing earlier, and they would point out this, that Paul, what he says in there about the relationship of man and then death, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to, this is what they would point out, to all men because all sinned. And so they, they would argue from that text that hey, he's not saying that animal death inherently was a product of the fall, but that specifically the death of humanity uh, was a product of the fall. And there's other uh, points to their logic there. I am not persuaded of that, but it is an interesting observation even from Paul's theology. But the last reason that, that some hold to an old earth viewpoint, I think this is instructive to us, is because, in part because of scientific observation. That, that it's not just driven by that, but it's in part fueled by scientific observation. I, I just want to say first, before I talk a brief bit about science, and I am no scientist, okay? I am a pastor. Uh, but a few things as a pastor that I want to share is that science is a gift from God. Uh, the ability that we have, the intellect that we have, the ability to see things and sense things and then to use our intellect to process those things, to anticipate things, to test things, to examine things is a gift from God because it helps us understand the world God made. And it helps us hopefully, ideally, grow in our awe and our wonder and our appreciation of him and this world that he made. And science, this may be hard for some, but I, I think it's true, science actually can inform our understanding Understanding of scripture it can uh, that it, it can inform how we interpret scripture but I would say it should never drive it like it, it should never be what is driving us towards certain considerations but it can inform it sometime when you have time you could even do this today read through Psalm 19 uh, it is very helpful on this subject. King David wrote this beautiful psalm and he starts by describing uh, the, the famous things like, the, he says like the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And then he, he says things like they pour, forth, they pour out speech, like, like they communicate to us, they, they show us things. There's things that we can learn by observing the world, things that we can grow in our, our understanding and our wonder before God. So that's how David starts the psalm. But then he gets to uh, the, the second half of the psalm and he starts talking about not just the, the heavens that God made, but he starts talking about the word of God. He talks about the law of God, the testimony of God, the precepts of God, the commandments of God. And about those things, he says that they are perfect, that they are sure, that they are right, that they are pure. There's a, he says that there's a sweetness to them that you will never find in looking out at the night sky. There's a certainty to them that you will never find by looking out uh, into the world that God made because that is God's unquestionable speech to us, uh, that, that we can know him and things about him we never could by looking at the world. And so science is a gift from God. It can help inform our understanding of Scripture, but it should never drive it. This is the part where I am not a scientist, so I'm going to say these things quickly, and there could be ignorance embedded in these. But there are certain observations as people look out into the world that at least um, bend them toward considering an older viewpoint if they don't land there. There's things like when you look out at the night sky, there's something called background radiation. When you have certain uh, tools and equipment to look at it that, it, that indicates by the measurements that the universe is expanding. Uh, that everywhere you look, that the universe is expanding. Uh, what they do then is they then, which I think there's limits to this, they extrapolate backwards in time and try to project if they're that far away uh, and they're moving away, how long have they been there? Or how, how did that begin? There's that. There's the reality. When you look up tonight, if it's a clear sky, you look up at the night sky and you see the myriad of stars. Think about how far away those are and the fact that that light is hitting your eyeball, they would say, how much time has had to pass uh, from light to get from there to me? I think there's answers to that, but it's a good question uh, for you to chew on, for us to chew on. They'll look at fossil records, geological records that seem to them as they uh, try to date things to indicate long spans of time. So there's things that they look out and see and that, that at least tempt them uh, to view in an old earth and there have been instances 
in church history where scientific understanding has actually helped sharpen our interpretation of scripture. The, the, the most simple, straightforward one uh, that you maybe have learned about in your history classes is the whole debate that used to rage about does the earth move or not? Like is the earth stationary and everything moves around it or does it move around other things? And people were staunchly in the camp of the earth does not move. Like everything else moves around it and they were thinking that because of what the scriptures teach. Uh, they, would, they would look at like Psalm 104.5 where the psalmist says that God set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And they would interpret that thing and God said this, like the earth, we can't see it, but it's got foundations and it doesn't move. If there's stuff that seems like it's moving, it's because uh, it's moving around us, not vice versa. And then this man named Copernicus comes around and uh, there, there's uh, debate, contention, as, as he's suggesting that maybe the earth actually does revolve around the sun. Maybe the sun's at the center of our universe and people just uh, raked him over the coals for that. But ultimately... I bet every one of you, there may be exceptions, I bet every one of you believe that we actually do move around the sun, right? Scientific understanding helped us know that. It it didn't correct the scriptures, but it sharpened our interpretation of them, right? So science can do that. I'm not saying it does do that on this subject, but we should at least have a category and humility to acknowledge that. I want to give a brief response to these things. This will not do any justice (laughs) to the things that I just shared. But I want to acknowledge in this whole discussion uh, as Christians that we should all believe in and know the limitations of science. That it is a good gift of God, but there are limits to it. There is a huge difference between, I would say this, there's a huge difference between science's ability to observe what is and even predict what will be. I think we've become very strong at that. Like we can see and understand what is and we can do experiments and tests. Will that repeat itself? Uh, There's a huge difference between observing what is, predicting what will be, and explaining what has been. That is very different. Uh, Science is based on observation, on seeing things. There was no one there, right, when God created these things. Uh, We we have to be dependent upon God's revelation. So there's a huge difference trying to project backwards into time. Science is comparatively very weak at that. And could it not be, even in what we just read, and if we would conclude chapter 1, it talks about how God finished his work of creation. Right, And then on, on seventh day, he rests. Could it not be that God had different laws of physics and different ways of things, maybe no laws of physics, when he's, when he's starting to create this world, starting to create this universe during that day, six-day span of time? And then when it ends, now there are things set in motion that are more stable and steady that we experience now, but that were very different back then. That could be right? If we believe in a God who spoke this universe into existence, just because things operate certain ways now doesn't mean they always did, right? And and time gone by. God could have, another point, God could have created the world with an appearance of age, right? Uh, He could have created these stars and the light beams between them and us, right? That is easy to God to do. If he's speaking billions of stars into existence, he could speak the light beams into existence as well, right? Uh, He could have made the universe whole. And then the last thing I would say just as a response, and we'll get to this as we get in Genesis, is that there is a huge explanatory power in the flood of Noah's day. Uh, that I I think we do a disservice to, uh, that if the world really was flooded, as I believe it is, uh, based on Genesis 6 and following, uh, that would have had a huge, huge, huge impact upon our world that we stand on today and how it's shaped, how it's formed, uh, that could account for massive geological changes, ecological changes that science may try to explain certain ways, uh, but the scriptures, I believe, explain in a different way. That is a quick overview. So what do we do with this? How do we disagree? Is it just a free-for-all? Well, you can just believe whatever you want about creation, about how old the earth is, of what happened. I, I do not want to suggest that. But I do want to suggest that we grow in our understanding of what some people have started calling in recent uh, times 
theological triage. Uh, theological triage, I think, is a helpful thing. Like nurses have to do triage if, uh, like, or if somebody out on the battlefield. Like if there's numerous people wounded, you have to start to determine who is in the most immediate danger, who do I treat first, what's more dire, what's not, what's a bigger deal, what's not. I just want to make a quick plug for this book. We have it in our uh, resource center. It's called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Uh, it's called, uh, by a man named Gavin Ortland. I actually disagree with him about the age of the earth question, but I will still recommend uh, this book to you. It is very excellent, a more thorough treatment on this subject of how do we think through what's essential and what's not. And then how do we disagree with people uh, who would uh, differ uh, from us in these non-essential categories? Some of you are familiar with a quote uh, from a man. You may not have even known who said it, but it, it gets a lot of airtime in certain circles today. I love this guy's name. He is a German guy named Rupertus Meldenius, I think is how you would say his name. But he wrote this quote in a little pamphlet he wrote back in the 1600s in German, translated into English, where he said, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. I love that. I think it says a lot in a short amount of words. Uh, because I think with this subject and any subject, there are things that are essential to the Christian faith. That if you don't hold to these things, then the rest of Scripture falls apart. The gospel itself falls apart if we don't hold to certain doctrinal matters. But there's others that we could disagree on, and the integrity of the story holds together. The integrity of the gospel holds together, and we can have liberty uh, in those matters. And so I wanted to think just briefly, briefly, like what are the essentials we need to believe about creation that are from this text, that are, are definite, and that the rest of Scripture affirms again and again, and upon which even the gospel itself hinges and people have come up with their own list. This is my uh, list. Uh, there's nothing sacred about this, but I think there's several things that we need to believe, that we must believe about the creation story from this text and the, the chapter or two that follow. And I would just list them this way, and I think they'll be on the screen. Number one is that God exists, uh, like that, that there is a God. That's how the Bible begins. The rest of Scripture assumes it and affirms it. The second would be that God created the universe out of nothing. It's not as if there was God and matter, and then God just figured out what he's going to do with this thing. He created it, right? He's, he created the universe from scratch out of nothing. Uh, that is number two. Uh, the third would be that God is distinct from the universe, that God is not in the universe, like in the trees and in the ocean and in the wind. And these, he is distinct from the universities created. The fourth would be that God created a good world. You heard that refrain again and again in what I read, that he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. God did not create a world uh, with evil in it initially. Uh, the fifth would be that, and that we'll get into this in future weeks, that God created a literal Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we could disagree about chronology of chapter one here, but the historicity of chapter two and following, that these are real people in a real place who really sinned, really disobeyed God, who really plunged us into death, that is non-negotiable. The rest of scripture affirms that clear as day. And the last thing uh, along that would be that all human beings have descended from Adam and Eve, that we have a common humanity, a common uh, image of God that we share as human beings, that we're all equally guilty in Adam as the head of the human race. And so all those things are essential. And what I want to say to my fellow young earthers here today is that there are many old earth Christians who would gladly affirm all of that. Like who would say yes and amen to all of that and gladly say, I believe all of that. Uh, and they, they would rejoice in it. And in those things, we should have, like Rupertus said, unity. We should celebrate that. Like these major, huge things we agree on, right? We have unity in those things. But there are non-essential things, I would say, with the subject of creation. Questions like we've been talking about, of what is the age of the earth? Where does it fit on the timeline? I think that is a non-essential question or a non-essential issue. We could differ on that and the whole rest of the story still holds together from Adam and Eve forward and the sending of Christ, the salvation that comes 
through him. Uh, We can disagree about whether the days in Genesis 1 are literal 24-hour days, or maybe they were epics or things like that. We can disagree on that, and the rest of the story, the rest of the gospel holds together. And so on those issues, if we are operating within those bounds that are up here, we can have liberty. We can disagree about those things. We can, we can dialogue about those things, right? But when it comes uh, to this subject of disagreement, I don't think we do well at that. Uh, and that's where I think we need to remember uh, Rupertus's uh, last statement that in all things charity, or some translate it, in all things love. And he was just saying what the Apostle Paul had said, just in shorter form. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul had written this to that church. And I so appreciate this. I mentioned this text uh, often when we were talking through the subject of baptism earlier this year, if you all were with us during that time. This is an important text, I think, as we disagree. He said to that church, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Then hear this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then hear this, the unity. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Like he, he doesn't say one view of the age of the earth, right? There are things that we center on, that the, the person of Jesus Christ and the truth of who he is and who God is and what he has done in the sending of his son. Uh, but in those other domains where we can differ, we should have humility, gentleness, patience, love, and be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Don't maximize what we disagree on. Maximize what we agree on. Uh, celebrate that, revel in that, delight in that. So we should be people, just pastorally, I think, who assume the best of people who disagree with us, right? Who, who don't just accuse them uh, of false motives or write them off from the start. We should be willing to ask questions. We should be willing to talk with them, share our viewpoint, hear theirs, come back to the scriptures again and again and again. What has God said? How are we to understand it? But may we not be people who belittle or disparage or who tear people down. I appreciate it. One pastor said, I love this quote, he said, by all means, let's spill some ink in rigorous defense of each side of this debate, but let's not spill one another's blood while we're at it. I would say a hearty amen to that. Uh, Be respectful. And I would encourage each of you, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, or maybe you don't know, be a learner. Like be somebody who's willing to read things and consider things uh, that are different from how you, how you think or how you have assumed or been taught things in the past. Be a, a learner who's willing to have your viewpoint challenged. If you're like me, it'll maybe lead you right back to where you started, but with a sharper understanding and more confidence in what you think. But maybe wrestle with what's controversial. And I want to end by remembering what, where I started. Even as we wrestle with what's controversial, May we revel in what is clear. Like revel in what is clear because there is a whole lot that is clear. Uh, we had a leadership team meeting this week uh, in my office and as we were, I was asking their thoughts on this text because I like getting input from people of man, how do, how do we try to teach this? How, how can uh, we speak with a united voice and, and minister to the church? And in talking through this subject, I really appreciated some thoughts that emerged where we were recognizing that when it comes to the subjects of creation and then of what some people call eschatology, like the end of time and the beginning of time, uh, there's some similarities, that there's some definite things we know for sure about those things, like how God made the world, how Jesus is going to come back someday. There's some definite, clear, unquestionable things on both those fronts. Huge doctrines, big, important doctrines. But there are also, in both of those ends of the timeline, there are also things that are less clear. There are things that people disagree on. There are things that we can come to the scriptures again and again, and people have now for millennia, and we could differ on. Uh, so there are things that are clear and there are things that are less clear. But then this is where we landed and what I, where I want to land today. We also remembered in that meeting, right square in the middle of history, or not chrono- chronologically, but between those poles of the beginning and the end, there is an event that is clear as clear can be. 
that it's unquestionable in how we are to interpret it because it happened in space and time with tons of people to see it, right? Uh, It's not just something we're anticipating in the future or something we're trying to understand about the past where no human being saw it. There's an event that happened that everything hinges on, everything hinges on, and it is the death and the resurrection of Jesus, And that happened in space and time. Uh, That happened on an actual day in an actual place. Uh, And it is fascinating to me that the end of Jesus' life culminates in a really important week. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but the entrance into Jerusalem. And then uh, it is no coincidence Jesus Christ died nearing the end of the sixth day. Right? Like on the sixth day of Genesis, man is brought to life. On the sixth day of that week, as Friday is ending, the Son of God uh, is put to death. And he is put to death in our place. Uh, Jesus, God the Son, who was part of speaking all of this into existence, he had become a man. And on that day, outside Jerusalem, he was nailed to a cross. And he experienced death at the hands of people like us for the sake of people like us. What was happening was God was laying the sins of people like me and you onto his son. And for the world to see, like he was putting him to death on the cross as a sacrifice in our place. As a substitute for us. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't mysterious. It was right there for people to see and to attest to that this man was put to death as a sacrifice for us. And then Jesus was laid in a tomb on the seventh day, right? On the Sabbath day, uh, resting, finishing that work of, of righteousness and of sacrifice for us. And then on the start of a new day, the start of a new week, on that Sunday morning, the first day, God raised him back up from the dead in space and time. And Jesus walked out of that tomb and started appearing before people. People actually saw him with their own eyes, touched him, ate with him, heard him talk. Uh, they, they got to see the resurrected Jesus with their own two eyes. Right? And he appeared to ultimately hundreds of people and eventually several weeks later ascended to heaven where he is right now and someday he will return again. But right there, square in the middle of history, there is no ambiguity. Like the Son of God was crucified for us was laid in a tomb, and then was raised for us. And what he offers to us is not mysterious either. He offers to us that we can share in the eternal life that he's been given. If we turn from our sin, we, what the Bible calls repent, we turn away from our sin that deserved death, that deserved the judgment of God. And if we ask for his forgiveness... Uh, what he does when we, we place our trust in what Jesus has done for us rather than what we've done for God, when we put our trust in Jesus, he offers and gives to us forgiveness free and clear that is permanent, forgiveness of our sin, and says and promises us that someday when the resurrection happens, because it will, we will be raised to share eternal life with Jesus forever, with his people, with bodies that will never die, Right? And so may we revel in that, right? Like we can disagree about all sorts of things and we can come back to the word again and again and search it and ask the Spirit's help to understand it. But we know some things for certain uh, that, that Jesus died for us, was raised for us, is ascended and ruling over heaven and that God grants pardon to repentant trusting people like me and you amen and we can revel in that we should sing about that we should delight in that even as we disagree about these other non-essentials i want to invite you to stand we're going to sing i appreciate your attentiveness on this subject and from this text we're going to sing a closing song and then i'll leave you with the word of benediction